Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy podcast with me, Tally Rye. This is the podcast that helps you feel good about fitness, food, and body image. And this week I have returning guest, Virginia Soul Smith. You may know Virginia as author of The Eating Instinct, and today we are discussing her new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And I think this is such an interesting conversation. Virginia has done such a fantastic deep dive on how anti-fat bias is impacting our children and how as parents we can navigate this topic. So I think this is well worth listening to. We are going to be talking about anti-fatness. We will be using the word obesity. I just want to flag that here. But I really hope you are able to listen to this one because Virginia is, quite frankly, fantastic. But before we get into that, it is time for Train Happy Trooper of the Week. Hello, Tally. I'm Charlie. I absolutely love the podcast. It's really helped me to cement some ideas that I've worked on by myself for a few years and it's a great thing to turn to when I'm struggling. I really love to have the sense of community around me, so I thought I'd send in my train happy moment of the week. I just got back from a run, and on my run, I was feeling really tired. I hadn't been well for the past couple of weeks um, with mental health issues that have really impacted my energy levels and, and my physical well-being. So I turned off my running tracker halfway through my run and went and climbed into a tree, sat into the tree and did a meditation and then had a little walk around the common and jogged back when I felt like it. Um, I'm really proud of myself for doing that and the boost that I needed to get out of the door this morning was listening to the Train Happy podcast. Um, I don't force myself when I don't need to exercise, but it's really helped my mental health this morning. So I'm really proud of myself and I'm really pleased and keep doing what you're doing. I absolutely love it. Charlie, I love this and I love so much how you listened to your body, how you trusted yourself to go with the flow of what felt good for you today and you just did it. And I mean, how... Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. The idea that, yeah, you may have set out to go on a run, but you don't have to just stick to that run if it's not feeling quite what you need. If you need to stop, meditate, take a walk, take a breath, have that time. You do that. And I love that you you trusted yourself to do that. I think that is a huge win um, and certainly a train happy moment and just a real big win for developing that intuitive relationship with movement so 
thank you for sharing that with us. Of course, if you have a train happy moment like Charlie, we would love to hear from you. We love voice notes too, I have to say. You can send them into our WhatsApp on 075-999-27537. If you're international, put plus four four in front of that. Or you can send it to us on our Instagram at train happy podcast. You can find us on there. You can follow us. You can send us a DM. We love it. Okay, enough from me. Let's get into this really important conversation with Virginia Soulsmith. Virginia, welcome back to the Train Happy podcast. You've been very busy since you were last with us. (laughs) I have. It's so good to be back though. I'm so excited to be having this conversation. You've written a whole book, a brilliant book, should I add. Um, called Fat Talk. And I feel like this is a really crucial conversation that I know your work has been building up to for a while now. Um, How has it been writing about this subject? You've written several books at this point, but this book specifically is covering um, the kind of childhood war on obesity. And I use quotation marks, as do you in the book. And we'll get into why that is, I think, for our listeners. But yeah, what has this process been like? I think the last time we spoke, you were at the beginning of writing this. Yeah, I think so. Now the the baby has been born. <laughs> she is on her way out. Yeah. Um, it's been really interesting because so the sort of impetus for writing this book was when my first book, The Eating Instinct, came out and I was having conversations with readers and doing events and press and all that. I would keep getting questions from parents saying like, yes, yes, I want to do this work on my relationship with food and my body, but how do I not screw up my kids? How do I, you know, I am so like, you know, overwhelmed at the thought of how do we not pay this forward to the next generation? And at the same time, a lot of those questions were also rooted in this anxiety of, and I don't want my kid to be fat because... I'm anxious about that because I know how the world treats them because I'm not comfortable with fat bodies. You know, it was like all these different reasons. But what it came down to is parents were like, I want my kid to love their body, but if it's a thin body, that would make it easier and be better, right? <laughs> and like that was such a wake up call for me and, really, you know, made me realize like how much work the first book hadn't gotten to because it was a little bit beyond the scope and also where I was as a writer and a person when I wrote that book like, oh, we can't work on reclaiming our bodies from diet culture. We can't work on raising kids who don't struggle with these things in the same way if we are still putting all these conditions and rules around which bodies are lovable, which are the right bodies to have. And so that was really what inspired me to start thinking about how do we help parents in particular, but really anyone who, you know, has kids in their lives, but also anyone with a body, how do we work on understanding anti-fat bias, naming it when it shows up and unlearning our own bias? And of course, in the two years or so since I've been, as I've been working on the book, we've also been seeing culture-wide anti-fat bias, particularly around children's bodies, really ramping up. And so it both feels like this really, it just feels like an even more necessary conversation than it did when I first started thinking about it, because there's just so many different 
I mean, you've all had stuff in the UK, here in the States, we've had um, the American Academy of Pediatrics just release these guidelines, encouraging doctors to push weight loss on kids. You know, and the, the way we talked about weight during the pandemic, and particularly in terms of kids' bodies, there's just been like sort of like news cycle after news cycle where I see kids' bodies in the crosshairs of this bias. And it's like, okay, we really, we have to do this. We do have to do this because I think you're so right. So many people go into this work for themselves and they want to let go of diet culture and they understand the kind of the difficulties of having a body that might not fit the beauty standard. And yet I think the biggest barrier for a lot of people to all of this is I don't want to gain weight. And I think that's a real barrier that people are feeling stuck in. And I know that's something that a lot of our listeners are kind of in the midst of kind of figuring out of like, so I am miserable dieting. I'm sick of being at war with myself and my body. And also I see how society treats these other bodies. And right. I don't want to be treated that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just had a episode about fertility treatments and the barrier to f- becoming a parent in the first place. Yes. It's so awful that people are put in the position of, I either want children, you know, I'm kind of given the ultimatum of you either lose weight or you can't have children. If we're thinking about a really awful, awful, heartbreaking consequence of anti-fat bias. And I think that's about bringing children into the world, but also what you're writing about is this next generation and how generations before has, have been treated, Mm -hmm. you know, um, reading your book, this isn't something that's new. This is something that's been going on for decades. And yet it feels like this, you know, quote, war on obesity is, you know, a modern problem. And I think it's a modern manufactured problem, which we will get into. But this has been going on for, you know, many decades leading up to this point. Can you give us a little overview on the sort of history of how we've got here? Yeah. I mean, if you trace it all the way back. Every culture throughout history has had very rigid body ideals and those body ideals are tied to power structures. So it's always about if we idealize this certain type of body, this keeps this group of people in power over other groups of people. That's always how it's worked. And so there's sometimes, this is why it's sort of problematic when people are like, but look at this culture where they celebrate curves. And it's like, well, okay, they celebrate a certain kind of curve, not all the curves. And they celebrate them again, if it's like men having beautiful wives, like sort of, you know, it's still about structures of power. So that's an important thing to unpack. I think particularly what we see when we look at the last 100 years or so is we see how the thin ideal has intensified in order to uphold white supremacy and patriarchy. And so understanding that everything you are told about keeping your body small is in service of these larger systems of oppression, I think is a very powerful reckoning moment for a lot of us. Because then you can say, okay, my personal stuff is hard and valid and all these feelings are valid. But if I stay in this place of pursuing thinness and you know not letting my body be free and be the size it needs to be, I'm not only hurting myself, I'm actually like perpetuating this harmful standard that hurts everybody. It hurts everybody in bodies bigger than me. It hurts anyone, you know, people of color, anyone more marginalized than me. I have personally found that very motivating in terms of unlearning a lot of this stuff. And I think that's a powerful 
piece of it. And so, yeah, I mean, this goes back to in the 1920s, the life insurance industries adopted ideal weight tables in order to decide who they were going to pay life insurance benefits to. Um, those were not rooted in health. They were not rooted in the evidence. There was no scientific evidence upholding the idea that people in larger bodies die sooner or, you know, wouldn't like cash in their life insurance policies faster. But that's the way they um, they did it. And then that led to our Western medical system being entirely rooted in the weight-based model where every aspect of your health is filtered through what you weigh and whether you are pursuing thinness or not. And where you are on the BMI scale, right? Yes. I mean, yes. so yes. much of that pre-1925, we go back to the 1800s and we have the birth of BMI, which... Right, which was a standard invented by a Flemish astronomer, not a doctor, um, in order to measure the, quote, ideal man, by which we mean 19th century white European men, which is not all of us, you know, not all of us alive today in 2023. <laughs> it's actually none of us. <laughs> um, even the white men are different bodies than the 19th century white men, you know, so like, yeah, really doesn't apply at all. It particularly doesn't apply to kids' health. You know, they've tinkered mm. with it a bit to use it to measure kids' bodies, but it doesn't track for, the, the way they use it with kids doesn't track for what stage of puberty you are in, which really impacts growth and fat accumulation. You know, there's just all these different ways it does not take into account what kids' bodies should be doing, which is growing and gaining weight. And am I right in saying that with the kids BMI that they use or the kind of growth percentile chart they use they're basing it on a weight range that has been kind of documented from like the 60s up until the 90s yes so yes. we're not even basing it on current body sizes we're basing it on historic body sizes right yeah we are comparing kids today to a chart that was at best my generation right I'm 42 I was a kid in the 80s and 90s or my parents' generation of bodies. Um, because yeah, they in order to put together the growth charts that the World Health Organization uses and that we use here in the States, and I know in the UK you use a similar one, um, they've pulled it from this data set that was collected between 1966 and 1993 or something like that. So we're comparing kids' bodies to previous generations, which doesn't make sense, doesn't reflect the diversity of these populations today in a lot of ways. Um, the other thing they did that is super problematic is in 2010, they added obesity to that chart. They didn't used to have that as a category on the children's growth chart. They just had at risk of overweight and overweight, which is still problematic, obviously. Mm -hmm. But then they, they lowered the cutoffs. So they added the obesity category and everyone who was at risk of overweight was the overweight category. And just changing those labels immediately stigmatizes and others all of these kids' bodies. And we know, you know, I interviewed the guy who was here in the United States at the Centers for Disease Control who pushed for that change. And he acknowledged to me straight out that the kids who are in particularly the overweight range don't actually, like, BMI is a particularly bad marker of health for those kids. Like, you have kids in that group who are just big boned. You have kids in that group who have a lot of body fat and are perfectly healthy. You have like, it doesn't correlate at all to what's happening with their health. So to stigmatize and label those kids 
is super problematic. And then the kids in the quote obese range, the chart doesn't continue to track them very accurately. So again, you don't, you can't use it to measure health because a kid with a BMI of 29 and a kid with a BMI of 40 are plotted on the same line because the lines just don't go high enough. And so we have like all these different ways that we're just like reducing them to these numbers that don't have anything to do with their bodies. And I want to be clear, like, it's not to say like, oh, it's so wrong to compare the kid at 29 to the kid at 40. It's to say like the kid at 40 isn't getting an accurate like picture of their health at all. Nobody is trying to understand that kid's health. They're just looking at them and assuming your body is a problem. Mm -hmm. And that is discrimination. It's doing everyone a disservice. Because you're right, it's not actually asking questions about that child's health. It's not giving them access to the testing they may require. Mm -hmm. It's not looking at the full picture. It's going, I see this number on a chart. I see this number on the scale. And that's wrong. Yeah. And And now we're going to push weight loss. Yeah. And now we're going to push weight loss. And I wanted to talk about that because that has really been in the headlines so much, hasn't it, around Mm -hmm. the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and their their new guidelines on childhood, quote, obesity of essentially we need to get kids back on diets. And for some people recommend bariatric surgery, which I Mm -hmm. think is just horrific. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why this is so frustrating and feeling like we're moving 10 steps backwards. It's like frustrating on a, like a soul level to me. Like it just, yes, it feels like we have gone a hundred steps backwards. The Mm -hmm. AAP is disagreeing with their own previous guidance. In 2016, they put out a report strongly encouraging pediatricians not to talk about weight and weight loss because there's so much evidence of the amount of harm that causes. And I can tell you as someone who has interviewed hundreds of people about their relationship with their bodies, their eating disorder histories, et cetera, et cetera, one of the most common origin stories is I was 10 years old, I went to the pediatrician and they grabbed my belly or they made a comment to my mom and suddenly my body felt wrong and I felt like I had to lose weight. And this sets off a whole you know, string of events that's really dangerous. And it's not just anecdotal. We know that the number two, the we know that the top two predictors of future eating disorder risk for kids are dieting and weight-based teasing or shaming. And we, we also know that those things don't just happen. Like we're not just talking about kids being mean to other kids. Adults can shame and tease kids for weight too. Mm-hmm. And so when it's someone who should be a trusted adult, like your doctor saying that your body's a problem, that's probably tremendously more harmful than just the kid on the school bus. You know, like this is someone who is supposed to be the expert on this telling you this. So the new guidance really goes against their own best practices. Um, it's going to increase risk for harm for lots of kids, particularly kids whose parents are more steeped in diet culture, you know, are dieting themselves, or parents, you know, families who are more marginalized and it doesn't feel safe in the doctor's office to push back against this advice. I mean, really the best thing parents can do right now is go into the doctor's office and say, I don't want my child weighed and I don't want to talk about weight in front of them. And not everybody feels like that's a doable or safe thing to do. So it is, it's really disturbing. Um, and I don't think when I dug into the evidence that they were citing to support all of this, 
there were just so many red flags in the research. You know, we're talking about like very small scale studies that follow kids for maybe a year or two saying like, look, they lost weight and they didn't get eating disorders. And it's like, okay, well, that's ignoring the fact that we know dieting only works in the short term and people regain the weight in the next two to five years. And that happens for the vast majority of people. It's ignoring the fact that an eating disorder might take five years to onset. So you missed it when you stopped following the kids after a year. And it also, you could see the bias just in terms of the way they were even tracking for that, that what they considered a disordered symptom in the research that they were worried about was things like binge eating, like emotional eating, like things like like related to eating too much. They weren't following the kids to see if they started restricting calories or excessively exercising because that's what they were teaching the kids to do in these studies. So they don't even conceive of that as a disordered symptom, right? Especially because the study is on fat kids and they just don't think that fat kids could ever restrict too much. Like that's not, like that's how profound the anti-fat bias is. Well, that's what's so frustrating. And I have heard anecdotally time and time again from people I may have worked with or other people in this space of how much their eating disorder flew under the radar because what is diagnosed as an eating disorder in a thin white girl that we kind of associate with the very stereotypical mm-hmm. eating disorder markers is praised and encouraged as, you know, congratulations, you're losing weight. This is amazing. Well done. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I, I think obviously this is the whole point of your book, but getting to the point of this double standard of why for it rings alarm bells in for one person and yeah gets congratulations in another and how I think that's just such a clear marker of how this anti-fat bias is so entrenched in these systems in ourselves in Mm -hmm. you know and it just it's really sad and I feel like these new guidelines are essentially that like let's teach kids a disordered eating um how to you know eat just you know have a a disordered relationship with food and essentially eventually probably have an eating disorder we know one in four people who embark on dieting will then develop an eating disorder and then and then what you know yep and then these people are getting missed through the treatment and support that they need and it's just it's the a huge domino effect, isn't it? For the for these people, you know, for these children for the rest of their life being yeah. kind of stuck in this cycle. You know, I want to be clear that I think a lot of the doctors who were involved in those guidelines truly believe they are not doing harm. They truly mm. believe they are worried about health. But I just don't think any of them are sitting with the fact that this entire model denies these kids basic body autonomy. And when I think about like, what is my goal as a parent? My goal as a parent is to raise kids with body autonomy. I have two daughters. I want them to understand that their bodies belong only to them and that they get to decide what feels good. They get to seek pleasure. They get to decide when to say no to something, when to say yes to something. And the way you know, and of course that's like in everything, right? I want that in their sex, future sexual relationships. I want that in like when they're thinking about careers, like anything. I want them to know I can trust and listen to myself first. And when we take this approach to kids' health that is so controlling and micromanaging and so focused on, you know, you have to eat this certain way, you have to move your body this many minutes a day, what we're saying to these kids is you don't get to listen to yourself. You don't mm-hmm. get that. You don't. There's no body autonomy for you. 
And I don't think the research has even begun to grapple with how do we look at how that ripples out across these kids' lives? What does this mean for their relationships, for their sense of self and security in, you know, anything else they pursue? We're so focused on like, well, we've got to get their weight down to reduce this future health disease that may or may not ever happen, <laughs> you know, this future risk. And we're just going to ignore the fact that we are clearly giving them all the tools to create another massive health problem and just not thinking about what it means for their lives. It's feels so short-sighted, doesn't it? And you mentioned obesity uh, is kind of reclassified now as a disease. Um, and that's problematic. <laughs> it sure problematic. is. Yep. Um, yeah. Can you talk us through that, the kind of thinking behind why it was changed to a disease and yeah, what that now means? So I think if you follow the money, the primary reason it was changed to a disease was to create a market for weight loss drugs and bariatric surgery. And we can see this because it's like you don't have to be a cracker investigative journalist to figure this out. You just have to look at when did they start approving weight loss drugs and when did they make obesity mm -hmm. a disease? Like they weren't subtle about it. It was like one followed the other. And we're seeing that right now with the AAP guidelines, right? They pushed all this weight loss stuff right after the FDA approved weight a new bunch of weight loss drugs for ages 12 and up. So they've never been subtle about this. There's always that underlying, we are trying to create a market of people to sell these procedures and medications and diets too. I think there was another layer to it where lots of folks in healthcare convinced themselves or truly believed that labeling obesity as a disease would reduce stigma because it would help people understand that your weight is not your fault, that these are you know, determined by biology and genetics and all these different biological processes that impact that it's not just calories in, calories out, and willpower, that weight is more complicated than that. However, what I think any fat person could have told them, what I think any disabled person could have told them had they been consulted, and what I think we have very clearly seen in the decades since the American Medical Association classified obesity as a disease is that making something a disease stigmatizes it. Mm. This is how we treat people with chronic diseases. Like ask anyone with a chronic health condition if they feel stigmatized for having that condition. And the answer is absolutely yes, right? We are a very ableist culture, just like we're a very fat phobic culture. So viewing people as diseased makes them broken, makes them less than, makes them need all these special accommodations and it's going to be a lot of extra work and how do we figure out how to, you know, and it does not result in removing shame and stigma. It has only further shamed and stigma, stigmatized people and pathologized millions of bodies that are not broken, that are not unhealthy or disabled, that are just big. And so that's, you know, where it went really, really wrong. It really dug in all this, you know, and we can see this when we look at research tracking rates of anti-fat bias, it's only going up. So this really didn't help at all. And I think that's because it was never really intended to help. It was intended to create a market for weight loss drugs. I mean, and nothing's more in the headlines right now than things like Ozempic mm -hmm. and Wigovi and these, you know, these supposed diabetes medication that is actual medication for some people, but um, has now become the new Hollywood weight loss drug. I think there's still this belief that there's a magic bullet. And mm -hmm. if you just can take this pill and you can just do that. And if a pharmaceutical company can create that, then they can cash in. And there's, oh my goodness, look, at, I mean, if we're just talking about how trending that, 
you know, Ozempic is oh as gosh. a thing. I think the Oscars just happened and everyone called it like sponsored by Ozempic was like <laughs> the joke, wasn't it? And yep. there's still <laughs> such a market. And this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because we're at this like weird time where we're seeing this rise in kind of mainstream body positivity. We're seeing this pushback against diet culture. We're seeing a sort of slow rebellion happening of people going, hang on a second. The way we talk about bodies, the way we class people, the way that all bodies deserve to be celebrated and um, seen and represented and then there's this like cognitive dissonance of like, and also there's the, this weight loss drug and oh look, thin is in again. And mm-hmm. we're kind of, it's like, it really feels like a game of snakes and ladders right now. Like we, yeah. we make some steps and then like, oh, someone's down. come along to make so much money and we've down the snake and then we've got to push again. Yeah. And you only imagine that we're experiencing that as adults and, you know, I don't have children and I'm speaking this as a person who doesn't have children, but, you know, children are going to be feeling that too. They're going to be feeling this, this push and pull between these two kind of schools of thought, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your assessment of where we're at and how do parents kind of navigate that for their kids, you know, that want to, you know, encourage them to trust and listen to their bodies and to know that all bodies are good bodies and also that society is trying and kicking, you know, coming along, kicking and screaming, you know, they do not want to join this party. It's a really tough spot. I think we're in the messy middle of Mm. some progress. I think in a weird way, the fact that the backlash is intensifying so much means that we're getting somewhere. It means that we are, you know, that we are, changing the conversation. And so the people who don't want the conversation to change have to double down on their position. And so it's a fraught moment and it's an important moment because if we can keep pushing the conversation, we can get past, you know, we can like move up a ladder. (laughs) Um, And if we don't, then we're, yeah, we're right back down. And so it is, it feels like a really important time to be doing this work. as a parent, as an individual, who you know, whoever you are, like it feels like there's never been in some ways a more crucial moment to be grappling with this, but that does not mean it is an easy moment to be grappling with it. And I think what I want parents to understand is that we cannot put our kids in bubbles and keep them safe from all of this. I think that is often something I hear from parents where once they start naming anti-fat bias and diet culture, you, of course, start to see it everywhere. And it's horrifying. And so I get these emails like, well, I can't let my daughter watch Peppa Pig because they're so awful about Daddy Pig's tummy. And so what can she watch? And unfortunately, nothing, if that's true. <laughs> like, it's in every cartoon, children's show. You know, it's so prevalent. But that's not the goal because that's actually a diet culture mentality to think that I have to have a perfect diet culture free existence for my child. Yeah. That's trying to get it all right again. And that's what Mm. we need to break away from. What we need to do instead is actively engage our kids in these conversations, have them doing the work alongside us so that they can start to name and navigate anti fat bias and diet culture themselves. They have that counter programming from us. So when those messages get really loud, they know that their home is not a place where those messages are reinforced. 
And, you know, I have been, you know, I have two kids. Obviously, that's a small sample size. We need more research on how <laughs> we do this in a like large scale way. But what I will say is, you know, I started naming the fat bias and Peppa Pig when my older daughter was one and a half. You know, I would be like, why are they being so mean about Daddy Pig's tummy? He has a great tummy. You know, fat tummies are awesome. And obviously, my toddler was like, okay. Like, you know, she had cool. no, she did not know what I was talking about. She did not know why I was pressing pause on the show. But I can see now she's almost 10 and she is able to start spotting the bias herself. You know, she was playing an iPad game the other day that has like penguins, like it's a children's video game. And she brought it over to me. It's one of those games that they show an ad every few minutes to like progress you through the game, which is obviously a terrible model for children's content in the first place. But she comes over and she's like, mom, there's a keto weight loss drug ad in my game. And it's like in a children's video game, there's an ad for keto weight loss supplements with like a skinny, you know, toned torso, you know, you know the ad, you know the type of ad I'm talking about. And of course, my first instinct was like, I'm going to throw your iPad into the sea. We'll, We'll never do that again. But instead, I was like, oh, what do you think about that? And just engaged her with it, you know, on it a little bit. She was like, this is ridiculous. Why does it say expert approved? What expert would approve this? Like this is, you know. And so that's where I'm not saying this is going to completely inoculate her from ever struggling with her body, but she's seeing the system. And I don't think at her age I was seeing the system. And so I do think that is a shift we can make where we can help our kids see the system and help them understand the impetus to like, we need to name this bias, we need to fight for fat people, we need to fight against this bias, and empower them with those tools. I think that's really where the potential lies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mum's The Word is a brand new parenting podcast hosted by me, Ashley James. Pregnancy, piles, and all the other problems that come with parenting, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Join me each week on my journey through motherhood as we celebrate the amazing highs as well as the lows. As it's my first time, we'll have celebrities, experts, and hopefully you guys too who will help me figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Find us wherever you got this podcast. I just went to a Lizzo concert like this last week <gasps> oh my gosh. and I was sat next to two little girls. They're probably about 10 years old, both uh... of them, like nine, 10 years old. And I just felt so emotional for them seeing Lizzo and the, and the dancers who yes. are known as the big girls. And yeah. I kind of, I, I, I've, I've, I've chatted at this a, a bit of length on a previous episode, so I won't give it too much, but 
just seeing how how important that is for children and there were lots of kids in the audience and I I just thought oh this is the way that it wasn't necessarily overtly acknowledged Mm -hmm. it was just the norm yeah and how powerful that is in terms of you know what these dancers could do I was just having a conversation with one of my clients who said yeah my my sister looked like a dancer so she was a dancer but I really enjoyed dancing but because I didn't look like a dancer I felt like I couldn't pursue it I felt Mm -hmm. like I couldn't do that as a teenager like that was my sister's thing and I was just there for kind of like a bit of fun but I was never taken seriously doing this which is ridiculous because we know that there are incredible dancers of all shapes and sizes and as you say there are people doing every kind of thing that you can imagine in bigger bodies yeah like they are I do this a lot with people where I get them to find, especially around physical activity, yes, get them to yeah. find things. I've found everyone from rock climbers to mm-hmm. surfers to pole dancers to um, kayaking to Absolutely. you name it. Yes. I, I can find you someone. Yeah, um, they're out there. They're doing it. They're, they're living doing life. It. It's amazing. And I think, like you say, there are the perils of social media. And I think that's a really important part of this conversation because I think bullying, bullying has changed since even I was at school. Mm-hmm. Um, now that there is so much more social media involved. Totally. And there certainly is a certain pressure and beauty standard that comes. I mean, kids on TikTok right now, like I do not know how they're doing it. Oh, yes. Um, and also that's how I know I'm old uh, because <laughs> I can't, I'm like, oh, WhatsApp was bad enough. But yeah, um, totally. <laughs> but I think- you know, that you've got that stuff and then you have got people like Lizzo in the mainstream. You have got that representation. You can find people like, I found this girl who was doing figure skating. Oh, and love she it. was ugh, incredible. And I was like, and the amount of people in the comments going, oh my goodness, I didn't know I could do that. You look like me and I could do this. What is your take on things like TikTok? Because that's so popular, particularly amongst teenagers. I admit Social media is one where I'm like, can I just keep them in the bubble? Can we just not? You know, my kids are nine and five, so we're not there yet. Mm. Um, And I'm definitely working through some feelings of like, maybe we just don't ever go there and that would be fine. And I know that's not actually an option. You know, I know come middle school, this shifts. Um, But I do think, and I interviewed some really great moms for the social media chapter in the book who did have kids navigating social media. And rather than taking a super restrictive mindset towards it, which again is diet culture in another form, they really engage their kids in lots of conversations about who do you want to follow and why? And what does this person make you feel like? And, you know, and like there was one mom whose kid, when she turned 13, she was like, do you want to get on TikTok? And she was like, I do not want to get on TikTok. And like a year later she did, but at that point she wasn't ready. And you just think like how great that that kid, again, we're talking about body autonomy, that kid had that self-awareness of like, this does not feel safe or good to me. I'm not going to do it yet. And I'm sure now that she is on it, it's like, you know, I'm still complicated, but she's a whole year more mature, right? She's had a whole year to sort of like suss it out in a different way. And her mom's like, yeah, she still would rather like look up crafts on Pinterest. Great. Like know that about yourself and run with it. And so... I think, again, like we have to let go of some of the fear and trust that like if we are giving our kids these tools, if we are teaching media literacy, they can engage with this content in a different way while also acknowledging that we are talking about algorithms made by corporations that just want your eyeballs. And so, you know, like these devices are designed to work against us. And so 
you know, I think especially for younger kids, like time limits are probably useful at that, you know, to help manage that. And working on your own relationship with this stuff, again, really critical, which I am the first to say my screen time usage is not where I want it to be, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, like definitely a work in progress there. Um, But I do, you know, like one small thing I do is like I look for at least like one or two activities on the weekend where I know like I can't have my phone, like whether we're swimming or doing something where it's like I I can't have my phone right here to make sure that like we are engaging as a family in like a phone free way for just like, even if it's an hour, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. um, and my kids get lots of screen time to be clear. We're not like a screen time purist household because I don't think that's useful and I need to cook dinner. Um, so I need screens, but, uh, but just thinking about it in terms of like, can we be engaging in those conversations? Like my nine-year-old bringing me that ad was such a sign to me that like, okay, she's not ready for social media at nine, but if she's recognizing that at nine, we're building, we're building towards her having the tools to do this in a few years. Yeah. She's building that discernment and the kind of her way of going, oh, that feels good. That doesn't feel good. I don't agree with that. Speaking of role modeling as well, I want to talk about that role of parents. Um, And I love that you spoke about dads specifically Mm -hmm. in the book because I feel like they really fly under the radar with all this stuff. They sure do. As with everything, there's always an extra pressure on the mom to A, be thinking about this. I mean, I hope both parents are reading your book. Um, but I imagine it will be the predominantly the, yes. the mother. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that women acutely are aware, probably much more aware of their relationship with food, with their body and how they don't want to pass that down to their children. But we also know that the the role of the dad has such a big impact. And, you know, once again, I can think of clients I've spoken to who it, it wasn't the mom, it was the dad who mm-hmm. role modeled the disordered relationship with exercise. Exercise is a big one in this yeah, father relationship. Absolutely. We're not talking about it enough. So yeah, what were your thoughts on writing that section of the book and why it was important to include dads in the conversation as well? We really need dads to be in this conversation and The research is quite clear about that. We see that when dads have disordered relationships with food and exercise, kids do pick up on it. It's not just, you know, research on eating disorders for decades has blamed moms and there's not enough research on dads. But the evidence we do have shows that they absolutely play a role, which Mm. is like, of course they do. (laughs) You know, like they're another adult who's extremely important in the child's life. Obviously, they have an impact. But the other thing is, this is another one where we have to look at the larger system. And the thing that's different about the way men engage with these issues and the way women engage with these issues is that men are given a gravitas and a unearned respect that if they are engaging with food and bodies in a certain way, it must be because they did their research. It must be because of science. It must be because they have some you know, deeper insight about this. They have an expertise. It's not because they're emotional. It's not because they were also taught to hate and shame their bodies, even though they were, even though men have emotions. And insecurities. They feel insecure about their bodies. I can think of several men in my family who I can think of, you know? Yes. But because our cultural narrative is women get emotional and feel bad and hate their bodies and men train for Ironman, men run ultra marathons. (laughs) 
Right. Men do CrossFit. They are weekend warriors. And there's nothing disordered about that. But there is something disordered about the woman who goes to the gym twice a day, you know. And so we have this double standard around exercise in particular and also food issues, which hurts everybody because it both like makes the, you know, it obviously like marginalizes women more, but it also makes it much harder for men who are struggling to get help to name and see that they have a problem. And it makes it much easier for them to pass all of that on to their kids as like, oh, dad's so healthy. Dad works out so much. Disciplined. Yes. Um, and without looking at like, actually like dad can't skip a weekend, you know, dad can't like dad really like makes our whole family's weekend schedule revolve around his three hour bike rides or his eight hour, you know, hikes or whatever. And like, that's something maybe we want to look at as a family. Like, why can't dad take that time off and just like do more stuff with the kids or whatever? Why is the mom left managing the whole weekend? Because dad has to train for his Ironman. Like there's, there's a lot there. And there's a lot in terms of like gender norms and expectations about who does what in the house. So it's really important to look at dads and to look at dads without demonizing them, which I admit as a feminist, <laughs> I've had to do some work to get to that place. Um, but it is true that when, you know, I would talk to, I would interview these men and I would be thinking, part of my brain would be thinking, like, but you're a guy, like, come on, you're a guy. What do you, when they're opening up to me about like how, much they hate their bodies and how much this feels so necessary and they're holding themselves to the standard and the but what but you're a guy response is actually terrible like that's so that's me reducing their problems that's me not saying oh right we need a different script here we need language for men to talk about this this is one of those things where diet culture hurts everyone yes not proportionately but it does hurt everyone it does and the way that it hurts men also then like doubles down on the way it hurts women. So, um, and people of all genders. So I think it's really important to look at, I hope, I mean, you're completely right. I can look at my newsletter stats and my Instagram followers and know that 90% of my readers are women, but I do hope that they at least leave this book out on the coffee table or put it on their partner's nightstand and that some dads at least read chapter nine because, uh, it's really important. And, you know, talking to dads who have started to do the work, like one dad I interviewed whose daughter had a pretty severe eating disorder, and he did recognize like a lot of her behavior she had learned from watching him. You know, he's in such a better place and his relationship with his daughter is so much better because they have done that healing together and because he was able to admit how he had played a role and repair that harm. And so the potential for dads to have much richer, fuller relationships with their children by putting some of this down is just, I I hope that's very motivating to people. Virginia, we just need to get you on Joe Rogan. I think that's the goal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm available, but I... It's like, ooh, that that could be interesting, but also like, can I even bear it? Um, Do you find it interesting? Because I think with men as well, there's not as much emphasis on, for some people there is emphasis on losing weight as such but it's more about looking muscular and gaining muscle Mm -hmm. um and so there's a body dysmorphia there but it's it's because it's not about being as tiny as possible once again it flies under the radar because it doesn't fit this view of what we think disordered relationship with our body is right you have to look a little harder you have to squint at it to see the anti-fat bias but it's still rooted in anti-fatness like it's it's still absolutely that, but, you know, 
it's also like it's about looking muscular. It's also it's you know they, they get really into like what that means to be a man. Yes, I think, and like tracking all these different measurements and the like data you know like the mm. data of it all. And so it's not looking at like, but actually the data of it all is about thinness stuff. And it's so, interesting, yeah. you know, that this is a broader conversation and something I'm deeply interested in. But I think for men as well, like for women, we develop these, we lean really hard on food or restriction and dieting, often because of other things going on in our life that we do not know how to hold and process and deal or feel it. We don't yep. know, you know, yep. um, and I'd really cite everyone to check out my episode of Pixie Turner about food therapy, because we really get into that there. But I think for men as well, this is another symptom of men not being able to open, express how they feel, not being able to communicate that, you know, and express their emotions and, and feel their feelings and that they might be very disciplined on the surface and, you know, very committed and dedicated, but to, you know, CrossFit or Ironman or whatever it is. But also, what are they trying to cope with? That's always my question. Like, what's what's this actually all about? Yeah, yeah. They're doing the same thing. I mean, they're channeling stress and anxiety and whatever, you know, other issues in their life through they're, – they're using food, they're using exercise in the same way women do – and maybe even more so because they really aren't given, you know, we don't encourage boys to talk about their feelings, to be vulnerable and open. And so because of the way they're socialized, this is one of very few tools available. It's like this or substance abuse, right? And so that's, I think, super problematic. And that's something else parents, you know, parents of boys need to think about, like, how am I helping my son have a broader tool set, have an emotional vocabulary, have access to different coping strategies so that this won't be the only thing on the table for him. For parents listening who are like, where do we go from here? Obviously, we read your book, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I think there is, yeah, this this kind of feeling of how can I protect? How can I raise awareness with my children? How can I, you know, nurture this fat positive environment what are your kind of key starting points for people who may be like oh this isn't something I'd necessarily realized that's like this issue goes a lot further than I realized like where do people start with all of this well again I think trying to cultivate fat positive community and hopefully in terms of your real life relationships like your kids should have fat people they love and care about. Um, that's important. But also in terms of, yes, I mean, we are a, a pro-Lizzo household, <laughs> deeply, spiritually pro-Lizzo household. Um, and my five-year-old is word perfect on the special oh, album. That. And, you know, <laughs> um, you know, like, so in the music, in the shows you watch, like, it is just like starting to fold it in in a way that doesn't feel like we are looking for ways to like fat people, but much more like fat people mm -hmm. are in the world and they are doing wonderful things. And we are seeking multidimensional human beings that aren't just the butt of the joke. Exactly. And so continually sort of building that. So I think that's a really good starting place. I think recognizing if you have your own work to do, and I mean, we all have our own work to do on this, like thinking about what support you need um, to be doing that work because you deserve it for yourself, but also it will be important for your kids. 
And I also want to say there, you know, for folks who are struggling, who know they're struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder, and they haven't, you know, recovery is feeling far off. You're not feeling like you're there yet. Just know that you don't automatically pass this on to your kids. You can put some protective measures in place, like making it a policy not to talk negatively about bodies around your children is a really great step that is honestly harder than you think. Like I made that choice when my older daughter was two and it did take some practice (laughs) to like catch myself and be like, oh God, I was about to do it again. Okay, no, no, no. Um, But that was really powerful for me because hearing it and and sort of realizing how often those thoughts came into my head was very like eye-opening and helped me start to, because I was then actively interrupting the process, started to make them less and less. So um, just sort of setting that policy and then considering where in your life this shows up, you know, depending on the age of your kids, the pediatrician's office is always going to be a factor, school, kids' sports, dance types of activities, um, relationships with grandparents. I was about to say those pesky family members yep. that come along and make their comments. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And then considering what do I need to do to help my child navigate this to, you know, if they're younger to sort of you know, keep them safe, be giving them these tools. And that kind of fundamentally always comes back to how often and how loudly can you say, I trust their body. I'm not worried about this. Their body is not a problem. And just looking for the opportunities, because even if the pediatrician makes the comment about their weight, if your response is, I trust their body, this doesn't seem like a problem to me, that's what your kid hears. And that matters more because your input does matter more than the doctors. And same with grandma and same with coaches. You know, it gets harder as kids get older, but our influence is still there. We are still their foundation. And so just looking for ways. And then the last one I'm going to say is, especially if you have older kids and you're like, well, I've been getting this wrong for a while. I think there is so much power in owning that with your kids and apologizing and explaining you want to repair and you're figuring out what repair looks like. And, you know, that that's something you can do together. And I think that's probably the hardest place to be, to be honest. It's going to take your kids a while to trust that you're really doing that work and that they're really safe and that they can trust themselves to eat as much as they need to eat if food's been really restricted in the past and all of that. But don't be afraid to try because it's way better than staying in It's that not place. too late. You know, it's not too late. It's really I not. Think that's really, really powerful message to hear. Um, Virginia, I finished asking everyone what has been their most recent train happy moment. Ooh, that's a fun one. Well, I am getting into strength training a little bit, which is very exciting for me. Um, so last year, I had a couple of injuries. I fell and sprained my ankle in our driveway and I was having all these back problems. So I was in physical therapy like all year and so didn't do any other. That was that was my movement last year was just, you know, rebuilding. Um, and then I finally graduated and I've started doing um, Lauren Lavelle's workouts. Um, yes, we love Lauren. She is amazing. And finding that safe space of total no diet talk, fat positive, She's funny. It's great energy on the videos. And so I started doing her bar first because I kind of knew bar better. And then I was like, I guess I could try the boot camp, the weightlifting boot camp. Maybe that would be interesting. And I like 
love it. And it's really, um, it's really helping like my back issues and all, you know, like, so there's like that immediate, like, oh, I feel, I have less pain. I feel stronger. Um, but it's also just like the first time I think I'd always felt like that wasn't for me. You know, I wasn't the type of person who could do that. And so having that open up to me, you know, at 42, at (laughs) this stage of my life, like when, yeah, it's really, it's really powerful. So that's been cool. It's really cool when you realize like, oh, it's not inherently the exercises that are bad or like that, that it's just how it's always been presented to me or how I've not seen myself in any of these environments. Like, I think that's the issue. And that's something I'm very passionate about. And this podcast is very passionate about. Okay, yes. Virginia, people are going to want to find all your work. You have, like I said, you've written several books. You're regularly writing the New York Times. You have your newsletter, Burnt Toast. Where can people find you? Give sure. us all the things. <laughs> so you can get both my books anywhere you buy books. Um, Fat Talk is out April 25th. And then The Eating Instinct is my first book. Um, and there's also audiobooks of both if that's your jam. So yeah, that's the book. And then um, the best place otherwise to follow me is the Burnt Toast newsletter, which is virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And there's also the Burnt Toast podcast, which is wherever you are listening to this podcast. We are also there. So definitely do that. And then on Instagram, Twitter, and very begrudgingly TikTok, I am at the underscore soulsmith. You're doing incredible work and we're so grateful for you. And thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tali. This was awesome. But that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please do let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. And we do want to hear from you. We want your questions. We want to hear your train happy moments. And we'd love to feature you as Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So remember, you can get in touch with us via our WhatsApp. It is 07599927537. And whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on, please rate and review it really helps the show and it really helps spread the train happy message and that is it for this week i'll be back with a brand new episode for you next monday see you then hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.